morning's lesson will be taken from Philippians 1, verse 9 and 10. Here Paul presents six gates of approval and the acceptance of a practice or a thing that we would choose to do or want to do. In Philippians 1, verse 9 and 10, Paul said, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment or discernment, to the intent that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. We're always concerned about how we should govern our lives in the area of the lawful. It's a simple matter, really, uh, in determining what's lawful, because you simply search the Scriptures. And the thing that the Scriptures command, that's what you do. And the things that it forbids, that's what you don't do. So that's pretty simple. But the larger area of life is really in the area of the lawfulness of the thing that I have a right to do and must make a decision as to whether I will do it. Now this is where the real hard decisions come. It's where sometimes we need to be when we uh, handle some things that maybe we even think inside of ourselves is unlawful. If the brother talking with me, for instance, does not believe that social drinking is unlawful, I'm willing to grant for the argument's sake that it's lawful and then discuss it as I'll discuss this morning. I don't think it's lawful. I'll state that very clearly. I believe I can present some scripture and some other sources that social drinking as we know it today in the U.S. of A. is immoral and uh, and uh, to start with. But you see, that's my judgment. Uh, yours may be different. Uh, so in the area of what is lawful, there are still some things that govern whether or not we should do them. Whether or not we have the right to do them. And that's what Paul's discussing here in Philippians. Romans chapter 14 and and 15, those two chapters deals with this as it deals with the stronger brother's relationship to the weaker brother. Now it's not the weak, weak brother because everyone is a weak brother. But the, he's talking about the weaker brother than you are. So in Philippians 1 verse 9 and 10, there is, I believe, a foundational principle concerning what we've been discussing. Because he says, and this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in all knowledge and discernment, so that you may be able to uh, approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and void of offense until the day of Christ. Now, if you notice, there was two uh, causes and two effects stated there in what we just read. The first cause was love. He said, this I pray that your love may abound. But what will love abounding cause? 
What, what, what's its cause? What is the effect of abounding love? He says this, I pray that your love may abound more and more. Here it is, in all knowledge and discernment. And so if you have a love for God and a love for your brethren, that love will lead you to make choices based on knowledge and discernment. Even though you may have a right to do it, you can cancel your rights for the, for the sake of a brother. And so abounding love brings with it the knowledge that enables me to make value judgments. <clears throat> Knowledgeable, knowledge and discernment, that's what he said. The knowledge of experience, the discernment that that experience brings when it comes because love has abounded in the decision. And that's what we also learn in Romans chapter 14 and 15. Uh, if the stronger brother's love abounds yet more and more, then he uh, will not judge that weaker brother. He will not tempt that weaker brother. And on the other hand, he will help that weaker brother uh, by following the example of Jesus. And that's because his love is abounding to the point that he is able to make those knowledgeable decisions and judgment decisions uh, that will enable him to do that. But they're made because of love. Love abounding. But now knowledge and discernment uh, becomes itself a cause that brings about an effect. And that effect <coughs> of knowledge and discernment is to the intent that I may approve the things that are excellent and be sincere and void of offense and be innocent. And so three things result from the knowledge that comes because of love. Now, knowledge in and of itself is, has very little value. Uh, Paul makes that point pretty strong in 1 Corinthians. He says, knowledge puffs up and love builds up. And I've noticed that in myself. I don't know if you've noticed it in you or not. Uh, but when I'm really joying and trusting in this great superior intellect that, of mine, and I'm really trusting in this great knowledge I've got, I get blown up like a toadstool and like a balloon. And the first little circumstance or criticism that comes my way, uh, I erupt. And there, went, there went my uh, blowing up. And I go everywhere because... That's all knowledge does. It only puffs up. <clears throat> but I've noticed when I've allowed God and you to help build in me the love that I ought to have, and you've had a part in that, I've noticed that I've become stronger and I believe built up. And so knowledge in and of itself is of little value. But the knowledge that comes because of love and the discernment that comes because of love enables me to know the difference between good, better, and best. And that's what I want to know to be able to make knowledgeable decisions. It's easy to make decisions between good and bad. That's easy. Anybody can do that. The, difference, the difficult thing is to determine what's good what's better, and what's best. And never sacrifice the better for the good, 
and never sacrifice the best for the better, <laughs> but live the life in the area of the better and the best as I grow in this knowledge of discernment. Now, as I'm doing that, I'm doing that, the cause, which is knowledge and discernment, bring about the effect of approvedness, sincerity, and innocence, Paul says. But now that also has something in view. He says that unto the day of Christ. Imagine being able to stand in the day of Jesus when Jesus is judging the entire world. Imagine being there able to stand there void of offense and sincere. The word means without wax. Uh, they would sell their metal and wooden products in olden days with a lot of wax mixed in it. And then as time went on, the elements hit it, and before long you find out that it has holes in it because they would rub wax in it and then polish the wax and make it look genuine like the metal on, or the wood. When in reality, the first little weather, the heat and the sunshine and all that caused you to see that it was full of cracks and holes and wasn't worth much. But imagine being able to stand before Jesus without any wax, without any admixture of evil. Uh, being there, not only innocent, but sincere, as being there having all through life approved what was excellent. And so the things that we are hard for us to decide is, should I, I have a right to do this particular thing, but is it the excellent thing to do? How will it affect a weaker brother? That's the idea. Now, I'll give the platform to anyone who wants to argue that liquor is excellent. <laughs> you could not stamp excellent on liquor. Uh, uh, that's, what the, uh, that's not the excellent thing to do. Now, that it's good, we may argue pro and con. But when we would have, then we'd have to argue uh, excellence, because that would be pretty hard to prove in light of the fact that one out of every four people that take the first drink end up an alcoholic. Would it be smart to put a, a shell in a six-gun, spin the cylinder, and pull its trigger? Is that an excellent thing to do? <laughs> uh, I don't call that excellent myself. I call that stupid, and I think you do too. The chances are one out of six, uh, you lose your life. That's just not the excellent thing to do. And the mature Christian, the one that is guided by love, that Paul mentioned here, and the, strength, the stronger brother is the one that uh, approves the things that are excellent. Smoking, drinking, dancing, 
cussing, gambling, and on and on the list goes. Those are things that you and I might believe are in and of themselves right or lawful. Let's just admit for a moment that all these things are lawful. All the, are they excellent? Are they excellent? That's the thing that the Christian is to approve of. That's what comes into his approval, into his approbation. All things that are lawful and other things uh, other than lawful are excellent. So we're looking for the excellent way to deal with one another, to present our lives before one another. But Paul just mentioned it here. He didn't discuss it. He just mentioned that, there, that abounding love would bring the knowledge and discernment uh, that would enable me to approve the things that are excellent and cause me to be sincere and void of offense all the uh, way until Jesus comes. Now, he only mentioned it here. He doesn't discuss it. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he discusses it. And we're studying 1 Corinthians on Wednesday night. There are six things, and they're on the board over here, that Paul said in 1 Corinthians that uh, covers how love approves of what's excellent. What's the excellent way to go? Actually, there's seven, if we count the first one here, of determining its lawfulness. Now, the only way that you can determine the lawfulness of something is from the Word of God. We understand that. If the Word of God is silent about it, it just means that it's, uh, it doesn't mean that it's lawful. That just means that the Word of God is silent about it. That's all silence proves is silence. Silence doesn't prove consent. Silence doesn't prove disapproval. All science prove, silence proves is <coughs> silence. It proves no decision. It proves no comment. That's all silence is. And so if I'm going to affirm that a thing is right, I've got to lay my finger on the passage that at least allows the thing, that at least says that the thing is not wrong in and of itself. <clears throat> now that's my obligation. I believe singing is great, for example. I believe it's right. I believe that I can lay my finger on the passage that authorizes that, and I can. <laughs> now, if I believed that instrumental music was correct, uh, I'd want to be able to lay my finger on the passage, wouldn't I? It's not my obligation, you see, to lay my finger on a passage that says it's wrong, because my position is not that it's wrong, my position is singing is right. That's my position, that singing is right and authorized by God. If your position is that instrumental music is right and authorized by the blood of Jesus, then where's the passage? And so number one is the determining its lawfulness. But now our argument for our lesson's sake, uh, we'll just grant that the thing we're discussing uh, are in the area of the lawful. Those questionable things that come up anytime the question is, well, 
What's wrong with it? That's generally what you hear in an argument. What's wrong with it? Uh, that's the way a lot of conversations start. Well, what's wrong with smoking? What's wrong with drinking? What's wrong with this, that, and the other? Well, let's just uh, pick a, a, a question that none of us are really involved with and worry about. And the question is, is it wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Now, how many of you have been worried about that this week? <laughs> well, now that's going to be fairly comfortable then, isn't it? Because none of us are worried about that. Now, if we talked about what's wrong with smoking or what's wrong with drinking, we might be worried. Uh, and I want you to remember that the same discussion goes on about that, but we're just going to use this because it's a, a little... Uh, a little less uncomfortable. So just what's wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols? Per se, nothing in and of itself. Absolutely nothing wrong with eating meats offered to idols. Meat has been created for the belly, and the belly has been created for meat, the Bible teaches. And so the eating of meat sacrificed to idols is fine. But now, let's pass that through six gates of approval. The first two are found in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful, but I'll not be brought under the power of any. And so you can see in the area of the lawful, <clears throat> In the area of that which is right and lawful, we have two gates in which love passes a thing before it writes on it excellent. It must pass through two gates before love approves of it. Number one, it must be expedient. The word means wise and advisable. And circumstances will sometimes determine wisdom and advisability. Uh, somebody says, do you believe in situation ethics? And to a degree, I do. I mean, the Bible teaches a certain kind of situation ethics, but only in the area of what is lawful. It never crosses the boundary into that which is unlawful. But in the area of that which is lawful, the Bible does say that circumstances determines morality. What may be wrong one time, or right one time, may be wrong in another situation. But love makes this decision of what's the excellent way to go for the weaker brother. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, Paul is talking about eating meat sacrificed to idol in the idol's temple. I mean, he's actually gone in to the idol's temple and he's sitting down and eating uh, the meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. He says, if your brother sees you, and he says, don't you know that that's been offered to idols? He says, uh, uh, cease to eat for conscience sake. 
Now he's not talking about your conscience, but he's talking about his that said unto you, do you not know that this is uh, uh, sacrificed unto idols? And so for his conscience sake, you refuse to eat. That would be the excellent decision to make, even though you have a right to eat it. Because it's the belly's for food and food's for the uh, meat's for the belly. So you can see that one circumstance is fine. Another circumstance, when a brother comes in question, makes it inexpedient. It makes it unwise and unadvisable to do that under that circumstance. Now you can go to, uh, to areas of the world where they think it's wrong for women to wear lipstick. Well, it would be advisable in that particular area for the Christian woman not to wear lipstick. And so, uh, so that they wouldn't bring the cause of Christ into reproach. But is there anything wrong with wearing lipstick? No, not a thing. I think it's great. It's called cosmetics, which means to make order of. And that word is used in regard to the, to the universe we live in. The Bible presents in Genesis 1 and 2, God's creation of the cosmos. From that comes the word cosmetics, well-ordered universe. And I think it's uh, fine and great, but I don't think it's necessary. And so if I were a woman, I'd make the choice not to wear it, to offend the cause of Christ. But there's nothing wrong in it. And so love would demand that I set aside my right to do something in behalf of a weaker brother. But it would bring the cause of Christ under reproach or anything that would hinder the gospel, then it is inexpedient and unadvisable. Anything that makes an action unwise or unadvisable makes it wrong because love didn't make that decision, a demand for your selfishness in that area uh, makes it wrong. And so the right becomes wrong, the lawful becomes wrong. Then Paul says all things are lawful, but I'll not be brought under the power of any. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. <coughs> Now, eating meat sacrificed to idols doesn't bring a fellow under bondage to idols. And so he says, I won't do that if it brings me in any way under bondage to the idol. Of course, cigarette smoking never did make anybody under bondage to it, did it? And drinking and drugs didn't. Those things are just not habit forming, are they? <laughs> well, you see the sarcasm in that in that statement, they just don't cause a fellow to get to the point that he's just got to have it. And then you talk to him about quitting, and he says, I would if I could. Or he'll say, I can't quit. I can quit anytime I want to. And both those statements say the same thing. He can't want to. That's his problem. The fellow can quit anytime he wants to. He just 
lost the power to really want to. Now, he may think he wants to, but he may think he desires, uh, he desires to, but he really doesn't want to quit because he told the truth. He could if he wanted to. Because Paul said that he could do all things through Christ Jesus that strengthens him. Philippians 1. And so if he really wants to, uh, to, Jesus will help him to quit, you see. But now the thing that would make a man a slave is the thing that becomes his God. Paul said, Know ye not to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? Slaves you are to obey, his slave, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But thanks be unto God that whereas you were servants of sin, slaves of sin in other words, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching wherein you were delivered and being then made free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. <clears throat> Romans 16, verse 16 through 18. <clears throat> <clears throat> so Paul says very simply, Whosoever slave you are, that's who your God is. Because you serve a God, maybe several. The third place is edification. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23. This is the third gate. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. They don't build up. Not all things build up. If it's lawful, pass it through the advisability gate. And uh, you got it through that one? Okay, now pass it through the bondage gate. Does it bring in the bondage? Is it advisable? Did you get it past those two? Okay, now get it past this one. Does it build me up and does it build up others? That's the third gate that we got to get the, the lawful by in our love and allowing love to make these decisions. And so do we get eating meat sacrificed to idols by edification? Now, if I'm by myself and there's meat sacrificed to idols, and I eat it, meat builds up the body. So it's totally lawful for me to do that. But if you uh, are there and you believe that this is honoring the idol, then it doesn't build you up and I ought, to, uh, I ought not to eat it for your sake. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, Paul said, let all things be done unto edifying. And so if it don't edify, then I shouldn't do it. It makes something that is uh, proper and within itself and lawful and right, it makes it unlawful because of the influence that it has. Well, 
he makes that statement, let all things be done unto edifying. How many all things? He says you get everything you're doing through this gate. Uh, some weaker brother is watching you and looking up to you to provide them the example and the way to go. And so what I'm doing, is it wise? Will it make me a slave? And will it edify? Now, 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, mentions the fourth one, the fourth gate that we discuss uh, in Romans 14 and 15. And that's the gate of being non-harmful to others. Not only am I to be concerned about building others up, but I'm to be concerned about my being harmful to others. Uh, this whole chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians deals with that one subject. It says very simply that the thing that I do, I must hold this brother in view, not only to build him up, but not to hurt him in any way, not to hinder his progress in the gospel. And the fifth one is found in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse uh, 1 through the 10th chapter in verse 23. And it says, will it advance the cause? What I choose to do. Will it advance the cause? Have you ever sat down and wrote out a list of your priorities? <coughs> what are the priorities in your life? Now, I've done that and have determined in a general way that my priorities as far as commitment is concerned, I will, number one, be committed to Jesus Christ. And I will, number two, become committed to Christ's body, the church. And I will, number three, be committed to Christ's work. And any other commitment is going to have to take a lower commitment uh, to them. Anything we do that doesn't advance the cause of Christ ought to be ceased. Because it doesn't advance it, it just retards it. Jesus said, whosoever is not with me is against me. Matthew 12, verse 30. So there's no neutral zone, you see. So the fifth gate, I believe, is probably the hardest gate so far to get a thing through. Will the job that I'm about to take advance the cause of Christ? And so we need to bring our job, our career, to the fifth gate. Will it advance the cause? The sixth gate, the last gate, is found in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. And here Paul says, Whether therefore we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. And so will it glorify God? And so am I doing what I'm doing with the intent of glorifying God in what I'm doing? So number one, is it right? Number two, will it make me a slave? Number three, will it edify me and others? Number four, is it non-harmful to the weak brother? Number five, does it advance the cause of Christ? Number six, does it glorify God? And so, if uh, we'll 
graciously submit our actions to and through the scrutiny of these six gates. Then there's another gate we'll go through one day, for that shall be richly supplied unto us an entrance into the eternal kingdom. 2 Peter 1.11 That's the gate which we call parad- uh, uh, the pearly gates. The gate that enters heaven will be open to those who have passed their words, their deeds, and their thoughts <coughs> through these golden gates. I apologize for taking so long, but the lesson is of that importance. We had to deal with it all in one session. That's the lesson for this morning. Let's stand while we sing our closing hymn. Beautiful robe, so white, beautiful land. Of-